Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab, and I can't wait to get into another batch of comments. I pulled 22 of them. I never get through 22 of these, but uh, I will try my best. I'm going to go about 45 minutes this week. Let us begin. Let us begin with Parth. Hey, Gil, do you think that Alcaraz's Wimbledon win saved tennis? I think the timing of this win was crucial for the future of tennis. Novak, having won the first two majors of the year, was in his peak form, arguably. It was important for someone from the next gen to beat him at this level to cement their place as the next potential candidate in the GOAT race. Also, the way this match went down makes things even better. Now we won't feel a void in the quality of tennis once Rafa and Novak are out of the picture. I think this was a big psychological boost for loyal tennis fans. Now we can wait and see who gives Carlitos a tough time on the tour and witness another era of great tennis. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in, in the point you're trying to make. At the end of the day... While, yes, it, it does kind of help Alcaraz's case to get a big win in a big match against a great, a, you know, basically already legacy cemented great like Novak Djokovic, uh, it's going to help Alcaraz moving forward to have that under his belt when it just comes to the level of, I guess, respect that will be immediately bestowed upon his early career accomplishments versus alternate universe. He doesn't beat Djokovic in this final. You know, Novak, let's say Alcaraz doesn't come around until like next year. Djokovic, I don't know, retires. And then Alcaraz begins his reign of dominance without having had any overlap with any of the big three, he wouldn't get what I would call the rub. The rub. Which is Djokovic's greatness elevating Alcaraz's accomplishments in the case of winning Wimbledon in 2023. Beating Novak in that final, it, it makes Alcaraz a bigger deal than if he would have beaten anybody else because of how great Novak is. So, so that dynamic is certainly there. I will also say, though, you know, when it comes to did Alcaraz, I mean, here's the, the, the first sentence of this question is, do you think Alcaraz's Wimbledon win saved tennis? I'll never go that far. You know, if we had an era 
for a couple of years where there there was no mega star in men's tennis. And we were kind of looking for that. And we were like, where is it? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? That's not an ideal position to be in. I feel like men's tennis was in that position in the early 2000s. You don't want to be in that position. But if you are, it's okay. Like the sport does not die. And then somebody comes along. I mean, it's just how it works. Uh, but it is great that we won't endure, we won't have to endure an era without a star player. And I do want to share something. I, I want to do a little exercise just to demonstrate uh, the fact that Alcaraz is indeed a star player at this point. I want to just go to my my top 10 most viewed videos on the channel of all time. All right? And... I'm going to try to pull this up in my analytics uh, just to try to demonstrate uh, where Alcaraz is at in terms of popularity through the lens of views on my channel. Now, that is, you know, you do need to take into account that my channel has fortunately grown so that, and, you know, Alcaraz being a more recent star does have an advantage in that respect. But let me just read off the name. So, uh, here's my, my top 10 videos, and I'll just say the players. Uh, Djokovic Berrettini, Nadal, Djokovic Nadal, Alcaraz Djokovic, Alcaraz Djokovic, Nadal Medvedev, Nadal Djokovic, top 10 prediction, Tsitsipas Kyrgios, Djokovic Rude. And then after that, 11th would be Alcaraz Djokovic. So... Basically, what I'm trying to say is if Djokovic or Nadal is not in the video, previously, it would have no chance of being a top 10 video. Alcaraz is now kind of in that mix where he is he is drawing not quite to Djokovic-Nadal levels when it comes to views on my channel, but he's he's getting up there. He's getting in that range. So... I definitely, I'm definitely seeing just by that metric, it's a metric that I choose to use because I can see it and because, you know, you guys watching have a connection to it. Uh, I am seeing that Alcaraz is bringing star level kind of interest, which is great, which is great. All right, next one. It's from Lachelle Le 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 Bell? I don't know. Okay, anyway. Hey, Gil. Can you analyze your strengths and weaknesses as a player and who could give you the most trouble amongst the players in the top 20? All right. This one got 15 likes. A lot of interest in this one. I am I'm a big forehand guy. Like that's kind of who I am as a player now. Think about me. So like when I was in really good shape and I moved well, I've said this before, I modeled my game around David Ferrer. The reality of the situation is I can no longer play like Ferrer. I am not in good enough. I, my fitness is not there. My cardio is not there. I cannot grind. I, I have to be pretty aggressive on my plus one on the forehand and, and stuff. Um, so I would compare myself to maybe like a Rublev. And I think the players in the top 20 who would give me the most trouble would be Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev. I think the great backhand guys who can just, you know, go backhand to backhand with me 
and to wear me down and keep the ball deep and keep the ball on the court and just attack my fitness. I think at this point in my playing career, that's that's that would give me fits. That would be awful to play against. So, you know, anybody who has a backhand that I can attack, that's who I love to play because I'm really good at using my forehand and then getting into the runaround game. That's my that's my best game. You know, hitting inside out forehands, inside in forehands. That's that's my weapon. That's what I do best. So, anyone who gives me that opportunity to attack, but I am trying to learn from from Novak and when I go against guys with weaker backhands and stronger forehands, I'm really trying to hit into their forehands and trying to take what I'm learning from watching, hit into their forehands often and understand that, first of all, sometimes the players who use their forehands as weapons, uh, they, they'll miss more on that side when you go there with quality. And the second thing is you can get more you can get more out of their backhand weakness if you open up space on that side of the court before you go there. So I'm really trying to learn from that. But yeah, absolutely, the the rally tolerance guys with great backhands that would give me the most. Those would give me the most problems. It happens to be exactly how Alex Gruskin plays. So look, I'm not saying that I ain't, I'm not going to take it to him. I'll take it to him. But stylistically, he is my nightmare matchup. All right, from Alex. Why has Tsitsipas failed at the U.S. Open? His deepest run was to the third round in 2020 and 2021. He has shown in Melbourne and his performances on tour throughout the years that he is a high-level player on hard court. So what makes New York so tricky? Yeah, the difference in results for Tsitsipas between the Australian Open and the U.S. Open is, is absolutely puzzling. And I think, you know, two things, two things should be said about that. The first thing is sometimes you see coincidence. Sometimes it's coincidence. Like, you know, is Nadal that much better at the U.S. Open than he is at the Australian Open? You know, when you look at the, the difference in titles? No. Is Djokovic that much better at the Australian Open than he is at the U.S. Open? Does that make any sense? No, not really. So some of these things you know, never really have a, a great explanation. But I do think for Tsitsipas, the, the biggest thing you got to look at is the, the part of the calendar. And I have just gotten the sense that Stefanos comes out of the offseason feeling really fresh and he's had great mental focus at the Australian Open consistently. And I just think that in the second half of the season, it, it hasn't just been the U.S. Open, right? You, I mean, look at his results. Not that he hasn't had good results at time to time, from time to time. Um, I, I know that he's done some good things in Canada. He's done, you know, I know he's made the at least the final of Cincinnati, I'm pretty sure. Why do I feel like he lost his Zverev in the final of Cincinnati one year? Um, but, you know, he hasn't been as good in the second half of the year, post-clay court season, generally speaking. So I think he's, he's come into the U.S. Open. He has not been as fresh mentally. And he's taken some really bad losses. You know, the Chorich loss, I think it was in, in 2020. He had six match points. He was just unbelievably unclutch in that match. And when you're playing a, a really good player like Chorich and you make a ton of unforced errors up match point, 
it, it can come back to, to haunt you when you, you lose a match like that. Uh, then he played Alcaraz in the third round. It's a bad draw. It's a bad draw. So you do have to give him a little bit, cut him a little bit of slack for that. You know, at the same time, Alcaraz was not was not really who he would end up being in 2022 and beyond that year. But okay, you can kind of give him a pass for that. Uh, look, last year, the, the loss to Galan in the first round is one of the most puzzling losses by a top player at a major in the last couple years. It's, it's really up there as far as inexcusable losses go. You know, I don't know. There were rumors buzzing around, you know, in Greek media that, that Tsitsipas was upset with his court assignment. He was on Armstrong. It was during Serena's first match, so the energy was a little bit weird in terms of nobody really paying attention to that match at the time. Uh, but you have to have, if that's true, you know, you have to have a much, much higher level of professionalism than that. You know, you cannot, especially when you're on Armstrong, the second biggest court at the U.S. Open, uh, you cannot be so entitled as to being that upset over your court assignment that you are going to lose to Daniel Galan and come out come out sleepwalking, absolutely sleepwalking, you know? And and these have been the things I think that have been con concerning with Tsitsipas, even at, at Roland Garros, to come out and to say, well, I took a nap and I took a melatonin and I wasn't really ready to go because I took a nap and a melatonin. And when I came out against, you know, for, for my Roland Garros match um, against... Uh, why am I? Well, oh, against Tsitsipas. Uh, sorry, against Alcaraz. I just wasn't really ready to go. That's that's another thing, like professionalism. You know, you are you are a veteran now. You are no longer a younger player. You are no longer having to figure out, or you shouldn't be having to figure out how to prepare for a match at this point in your career. When when you're young, yeah, you, you have to you have to learn your lessons. But I really thought he would be past the, that kind of thing. So I got off on, onto a tangent there, uh, no doubt about it. But yeah, it's just been some some rough losses at the U.S. Open. I, I do expect that that will reverse course. You know, he's going to pass the third round. He's much too good a player for that to continue. Next one is from Racket Talk. Hey Gil, Carlos Alcaraz's victory was supremely impressive, and I think you nailed it on the head when you described it as the win that doesn't happen. It speaks to how complete he is already and how quickly he learns from his mistakes and his overall joy to improve and enjoy the process. I know you've said in the past that the serve-return dynamic might be an issue for Alcaraz in this matchup, but how did he manage that in this match? Do you feel like Novak left something to be exploited there, or was Alcaraz moving very well? I know Carlos served more to Novak's forehand to set up his own offensive forehand, but isn't the Djokovic forehand return just as dangerous? Example in some of the matches where he saved match points against Federer. Yeah, well, look, when I think about Djokovic's forehand return, well, the moments against Federer were obviously iconic and unbelievable. You know, it's not generally how he approaches his forehand return. You know, it's not, Novak is not an offensive returner. He's deep down the middle neutralize the plus one and win a baseline rally. That's how he operates. So 
I think that Carlos's strategy to serve to Novak's forehand to create more forehands of his own was was an excellent strategy, uh, especially with Alcaraz, the way he was approaching his forehand, so averse to being rushed, handling pace and depth so well, uh, using his his footwork really sharp on the footwork, getting getting out of the way of the ball when the return was coming down the middle. But, uh, I mean, that's the big question with the serve-return dynamic in this matchup is what would happen or what will happen when they play again? And it's always hard to make a judgment. Do you credit Alcaraz's return? Do you look at Djokovic's serve and say, well, it, it, it left a lot to be desired? Like, how do you assess what happened there? Because clearly Novak was not getting enough damage off of his serve. I think that was the the, the bigger thing. Um, I don't think it was Carlos's serve against Djokovic's return. Uh, I don't think that was a problem. I think Novak made enough good returns in the match to give himself chances to break serve throughout. That's my opinion. Uh, but Djokovic's serve was certainly not as effective as, as he wants it to be or needs it to be. The reason I leaned more towards crediting Alcaraz's return when it comes to just digesting the final is because of how Alcaraz, how good Alcaraz was against Jari, against Berrettini, against Zverev. I, I was already going into the final expecting his return to be impressive against Novak because it, it had already been one of the biggest revelations of Alcaraz's tournament. So I think when you look back on Carlitos's run to win Wimbledon, uh, two things stand out. The first thing is the return of serve. You know, it's grass court tennis. He faced big servers. He faced great servers. And his return really was elevated to an elite level in, in those conditions, under those circumstances. That's the first thing. And then the second thing was the nerve management in the final. Those are the two big, 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 big things. No, the rest is all granular to me. From Ron Robbie. Uh, with a slight delay, but wanted to give it a shot. I've heard a lot of people comparing the Alcaraz-Djokovic-Wimbledon final to the Sampras-Federer match in 2001. For me, I feel the obvious equivalent is actually the Rafa-Federer-Wimbledon final in 2008. While it seemed at the time like the passing of the torch, it was still clear that Federer was very, very much at the top of the game and actually went on to win the U.S. Open that year. Also, the anticipation was very similar, and it was clear that that arch was played by the undoubtedly two best players at the time, something I can't really say about the Roger Sampras match. It was also well in the final of a slam. Curious to hear your thoughts. All right. I love this comment because I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I mostly agree that that this Alcaraz-Djokovic-Wimbledon final was much more similar to Federer-Nadal 2008 Wimbledon than it was the Federer-Sampras in 01. Look, Federer lost in the next match after beating Sampras. Pete was not doing so well at the time in general. So, you know, while it was always kind of it was always kind of surprising to see Sampras lose at Wimbledon in this era. You know, it was kind of something that 
people saw coming. Whereas, you know, for Djokovic, that's not the case after winning the first two majors of the year, as you kind of pointed out. But here's where I'm going to throw in, in a curveball. This was uh, this was actually closer to 2007 when it comes to the circumstances. Now, I understand that the, the result of the match was the 2008 result where Nadal won, where Nadal beat Federer when Federer was on the big run of Wimbledon titles. And obviously, this is where Djokovic is on the big run of Wimbledon titles, and it goes the other way. But when it comes to, like, if, let me say this, if Djokovic won the fifth set, it would have been, it would have been almost uncanny how many parallels there were to the 2007 final, where Nadal lost in five sets, and uh, I believe... I believe it was a run of four Wimbledons in a row, four Wimbledon titles in a row by Federer, uh, which was the exact number that Djokovic won in a row. So Federer won his, I think, his fifth in a row when he won the 2007 Wimbledon, and then Nadal stopped him from winning his sixth. Pretty sure I'm correct on that. I'm not going to fact check it because I know that if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm like one off or something like that. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. So I guess the problem for like, you know, 2007 Wimbledon, 2008 Wimbledon final, I think that's where more of the parallels are. I think you're right. M much more parallels to those two matches than than 2001 Wimbledon. Let's go to the next one. It is from Vanessa. Hey, Gil, with Alcaraz winning Wimbledon, there has been a buzz about the new era of tennis starting. On this note, what would you like to see happen in the next 10 to 15 years? Three guys dominating the slams like the big three did or an era whereby the 10 guys each get three or four slams and every slam is up for grabs like the U.S. Open is now. Of course, we would have favorites going into each tournament. Thanks for the longer form content. Makes my, my ride to work more enjoyable. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. Shout out to the commuters. Shout out. I don't actually care which way it is. I don't think it matters. If there's going to be a couple guys dominating the the sport like we saw it in the Big Three era, that's okay. That's exciting. We know that that can be really, really thrilling. It can be an amazing ride. Incredible to witness. I think it can be exciting the other way also. The key is that there are players that people are very, very interested in. At the end of the day, that is what matters. So, I'm trying to think of, of some examples. It can be kind of hard, honestly. But, like, if there's a player who is maybe four in the world, five in the world, maybe even eight in the world, but who a lot of people are very, very interested in, And there's a bunch of those guys, and maybe they're they're not all-time greats, and maybe they're only winning two to five majors in their careers. I'm, you know, you asked me what I want. Let, let's remember what this question about. You asked me what I want. Like I just, I'm okay as long as as long as there's a lot of people in the sport that are drawing interest, that are that people like to watch and like to talk about. So. Yeah, it's tough though because I don't think that there are that many examples 
I think that's what I'm finding as I just kind of rack my brain and I might be forgetting some people, but there aren't that many examples of players. You know, I'm not going to really include Murray because Murray, uh, who, who I think, you know, had a big fan base, a little bit uh, smaller than, than the big three fan bases, I think. Uh, but, you know, he, he had a fan base, but he was also such a consistent performer and such a, you know, just a guy who was cemented in the top four and was competing with these guys uh, week in and week out. I guess, I don't know, was was Stan a draw? Stan's very beloved. There's no doubt about that. Stan has the affection of, of tennis fans, but was he a big draw? Was he a, a, a hot a hot ticket? Someone who's going to generate buzz? I don't know. I mean, the best example might be Nick, honestly. But you would hope that somebody could draw interest to the extent that Nick does without some of the baggage. I think that's possible. I think somebody can do that. All right. Jack from Jack. What do you make of Ben Shelton's struggles? He's 5-15 and 15 since the Australian Open and doesn't seem to have improved any part of his game. Obviously, it's his first full season on tour, so there was always going to be struggles, but I did not think it would get this bad. I agree with that assessment in terms of the last thing you wrote. I thought that there were going to be growing pains, so th that comes as no surprise to me whatsoever. But yeah, I didn't think it would be this bad. Here's, the, here's what I'll say about Ben Shelton right now. He's not playing good tennis. You know, the the stat the stats are the stats. The his results are who he is right now. But like long term, nothing has changed for me. I'm I'm still really really bullish on his assets. I still think he's a future top 10 player. All of the the tools are there. He's just got to smooth over his game. Uh point construction, shot tolerance, Return of serve is a, a huge issue, really big issue. Like, he just doesn't have a return of serve yet at this point. Um, you know, th there's probably some mental stuff also. Um, but, yeah, he's he's very much a neophyte. A really, a guy who, at this point in his career, most players are not through playing challengers yet. So you just have to keep that perspective he he had some big runs right away, an Australian Open quarterfinal. It obviously just propelled him into uh, a status when it comes to his ranking where he's playing all the big events week in and week out, and he's a tour-level player. And I think in the long run, that's going to help him. This experience and these struggles, they are going to help him. He's got a great head on his shoulders. He's got a a, a father who was a pro. I think he's a mature kid, so I think he's going to deal with these things in a way that's going to be constructive and positive, and uh, and he's going to get there. I I just I love I love his strengths so much that I'm just not worried about him. The serve, the forehand, the athleticism, it, it's too good. You know he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay, is what I'll say. All right, here's one from SJ. Repeated from last week, I missed it. Hey, Gil. So uh, 
in all your time covering tennis and reading tweets and comments, I'm sure you've read or heard many repeated takes on tennis. What is your least favorite popular take in tennis that gets repeated really often on social media? Here's some of mine. First one, Djokovic loses first sets on purpose. I think this is insulting to his competition and the sport of tennis as a whole to imply that an all-time great like, like Djokovic would tank the first set of a match at a Grand Slam because he's bored. Why would anyone want to watch a sport like that? I agree with you. I agree with you. Totally ridiculous. The, the strange thing, like, I've seen, I've even seen players say that, which, uh, which I've been really surprised to see in the past. Yeah, it's not, it's not losing on purpose, right? There have been points in time where maybe Novak has trouble getting the gears going, trouble kind of engaging in the match fully, mentally, finding the fire, maybe his body isn't feeling so good in the beginning. Uh, or maybe there have been points in, in matches where he's actually had a lead and he's engaged in some energy conservation. These are things that all tennis players will will grapple with. These are stages of, that all tennis players will, will go through. I, I guess the difference is that Novak just is so good that he comes back to, to win a lot of these matches and he's won so many of these matches that people are compelled to say that whenever Novak loses a set, he lost on purpose. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm with you. Two, Nadal's legacy is tainted by his lack of surface versatility. Surface versatility is great, but so is dominance on one surface. If someone comes along and wins 22 slams on grass, I'd call them a GOAT candidate. Why? Well, they're not super well-rounded, but winning the same major 22 times is an unprecedented level of dominance. And for Nadal, he literally has a double career Grand Slam. So can we stop with the clay merchant allegations, please? Yeah, the clay merchant allegations, I mean, I, I think they are, they only exist in some kind of more biased or very kind of, again, skewed sects of the tennis fan base. Um, you know, it's, there's nothing there, right? But, but as, as for like the basis of what, what you're saying here, that surface versatility is great, but so is dominance on one surface. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. And that's the problem, I guess, with with GOAT debates is that instead of just having a conversation about comparing and contrasting different players like, oh, this player is like that. That player is different because of that way. Let's talk about why. Let's have a conversation about why Djokovic has been extremely surface versatile. Let's have a conversation about what about Nadal's game and what he does on the court has made him so dominant on clay. Those things are interesting. But if you're going to be like, oh, like, if you're going to frame it in 
the context of a GOAT debate where you're clearly trying to put one on top of the other, that is where we completely lose everything intelligent about the conversation. And it just becomes about trying to argue for one player or the other. And, and that has been kind of a pitfall that a lot of tennis discourse has obviously fallen into. Okay, the third one. Insert player should have conceded this point after the umpire made a bad call. And then SJ's input, players should not be responsible for refereeing themselves. Okay. I agree. I, I actually think you and I, SJ, we are, we are against the masses here. Because, like, the most recent example is obviously Holger Runa against Francisco Serindolo, where the ball bounced twice, the chair umpire missed it, and Holger, I think, saw it. He said he only saw it after watching it on the instant replay, even if we, we completely take his word for it to be true there. Obviously, Holger had a chance to concede the point. And my stance on that has always been this. It has always been, if you want to have good sportsmanship and concede the point, I applaud you. Cool. Great. Love it. Awesome. Very noble thing for you to do. But if you don't do it, to go the other way and to be like, that is bad. That makes you bad. I just, I don't feel that way. I don't think we should hold players to that standard because, um, again, like, this is sports. Sometimes referees, officials make bad calls, and it's really not your job as a competitor to, to concede advantages that are given to you uh, by, by poor officiating. And tennis is the only sport where that expectation exists. The only sport. So uh, I think it's strange. I, I, and I just think in general... When it comes to, again, if we're talking about tweets and comments and online culture, you know, the problem always is, is that everyone takes a side where it's like either you are a, the, you either belong, I don't know, you're put in two spots. It's either you're like an angel or you are in charge of a terrorist organization. And there just needs to be some middle ground where it's like, ah, you know, all right. Holger decided not to go the route of like having a meet, you know, great sportsmanship, but that doesn't make him again, the leader of a terrorist organization. You know what I mean? Like there needs to be a middle ground here when it comes to sportsmanship. It's not always great sportsmanship, poor sportsmanship. Like, can we just find a middle, a gray where it's like neither it's neither, it's not bad, it's not good. It's just neutral. And to me, when an umpire makes a bad call and a player decides to just accept the advantage that comes with that, uh, it's, no, it's neither great sportsmanship nor is it poor sportsmanship. Um, all right, so I'm not really going to think of other least popular takes that, that I can encounter, but I thought that was a fun comment. All right, here's one from Tim Tim. Um, it, it's kind of a long one, but I think it's worth it. Um, I think it's a, it's a really well, I remember reading this comment. It's a very well thought out comment and it, it kind of addresses a lot of the, the criticism that I saw, um, in regards to like the Steve Flink interview that I did. 
So, so uh, it'll give me a chance to kind of talk about that. Uh, yeah. Hi, Gil. Just wanted to ask why people are focusing on Djokovic's backhand and volley errors and missed opportunities in the Wimbledon final and not Alcaraz's missed opportunities. Is it because of the standard Djokovic is held to or because we tend to focus more on losing players' missed chances? Trying to be as objective as possible here, I actually think Alcaraz missed more opportunities in this match. His breakpoint conversion was 5 of 19 to Djokovic's 5 of 15, which included breakpoints early in the first and fourth set he didn't take and arguably cost him those sets. Much is made of, jo of Djokovic's two backhand errors in the tiebreak, but those were neutral rally balls, and there was no guarantee he would have ever even won those points. Meanwhile, Alcaraz found himself in advantageous positions at the net on the two previous points on Djokovic's serve, and he lost both of them. Do people judge errors in crucial moments differently depending on players' play style, or is it loser-slash-winner bias? Absolutely love the channel, by the way. Best analytical content on YouTube. You have a great understanding of not just the top 10, but also players that are qualifiers or on the Challenger Tour. Thanks for that. I try my best when it comes to the Challenger Tour. Um, some people are actually better than me at that, but I do try my best. Okay, great comment. Um, so let's, let's delve into this. First of all, the answer is yes. That's the short answer. So when you say... Why are people focusing on Djokovic's mistakes? And then you say, is it because of the standard Djokovic is held to or because we tend to focus more on the losing players' missed chances? A hundred percent both. A hundred percent both. We definitely focus on lose, the losing players' missed chances. I would go as far as to say, when a player wins a match, we tend to ignore their missed opportunities. Because... They made up for them. At one point or the other, they took those missed opportunities and they were able to capitalize on opportunities thereafter. So to focus on missed opportunities by the player who won, it feels like you're focusing on simply the wrong thing. Like think about it from, from my perspective. If I'm analyzing what happened in the match and I'm fixated on missed opportunities from the player who won, I'm not really getting at the at answering the central question, which is why did the player who won the match won win? Sorry. Why did the player who won the match why did they win the match? <laughs> so there's certainly a bias on focusing on the losing player's mistakes. A hundred percent. And then you also say, is it because of the standard Djokovic is held to? And the answer to that is definitely yes. If a player who has an inconsistent backhand or a player who is known to get nervous or get tight missed those neutral backhands at the end of the second set tiebreak, it would not be seen as very surprising. Would we talk about it? Yes, but the tone might be a little bit different. Right. If this was, uh, do I have to pick on a player here? I guess I do. FAA. If FAA missed two neutral backhands in the Wimbledon final, in his first ever final, let's say it's, he's in his first major final, he misses two neutral backhands at the end of a second set tiebreak, it's like to go up two sets to love, it would kind of be like, 
Well, yeah, like that's not that surprising. And that's not because FAA isn't a tremendous player, but he ain't Novak Djokovic. He ain't the most solid and consistent two-handed backhand, maybe of all time, the most clutch player, probably of all time, misses their best shot. Like, you know, that that's what made it so... That's what made those mistakes so like, oh, whoa, wow, he, he missed. It's absolutely because it's Novak. It's absolutely because it's his backhand. Um, now, let me go to your next paragraph where, where you make the argument that Alcaraz missed more opportunities in the match compared to Djokovic. Uh, first of all, you make one great point in here that I think uh, should really be given some some. I don't know, some credit, which is that there is no guarantee that Novak would have won the point if he made those cross-court backhand trades. They, they were. They were neutral balls. The point was 50-50 at the time. And, you know, those points were up for grabs. So a little bit different than, you know, the the break point miss at the start of the, the fifth where it was an overhead. Novak should have won that point. Um, so a little bit different in that in that way, no doubt. That's a great point. I would say the breakpoint number is very, is very, very deceiving. Now, now let me just because you know the match, the details of the match are kind of slightly fading away. Um, I do want to just fact check something real quick um, when it comes to that breakpoint number. Just want to take a look at something. So, yeah, here's the problem with comparing, just one problem with just looking at the breakpoint stat, 5 of 19 versus 5 of 15. And this is the problem with breakpoint as a stat. They played that 3-1 that game in the, in the third set where Alcaraz had how many breakpoints? How many missed breakpoints in that game? At least, like, Eight, so and then he ended up breaking, so he's probably like, probably like one for eight or something like that. Um, I, I'm not going to count them right now, but like that—that that is where the breakpoint stat is. It utterly lies. It utterly lies to our faces because it tells you that Alcaraz missed opportunities. He didn't. He broke serve. He broke serve. Who cares? Who cares that he 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 lost the first break point, the second break point, and the third and the fourth? It's gonna make his break point stat look bad, but it lies. That stat completely lies. So I just want to make that point. And then when it just look, I I don't agree that Alcaraz missed more opportunities in the match. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you can talk about early break points in the first set, early break points in the fourth set. Um. You know, none of them were as clear-cut. Now, none of them were as clear-cut as set points, right? Set points. And then in the fifth set, you could make an argument that, that yes, it's an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Uh, but we're talking, about, we're talking about a missed put-away. And we're not talking about any missed put-aways on the Alcaraz opportunities. And then when it comes to the—you uh, said that Alcaraz found himself in advantageous positions at the net— 
He didn't miss volleys, though. He didn't make bad volleys. Djokovic just came up with good passing shots. So that's not an example of... Yeah, I don't think that supports your argument. Um, so yeah, a lot of truth to that. Completely understand um, the reaction to the focus on Djokovic's mistakes. You know, I, I was not surprised by some of the criticism that was levied on the on you know Flink and I's conversation. I I just wasn't surprised, and uh, I get it. I totally get it. So I'll leave it at that, and uh, let's go to the next one. Common sense media. Hi Gil, do you think Medvedev can win another Slam? Maybe you can go into what you think will need to happen, and if you think he can do them. Well, first of all, yes, he is definitely helped by the fact that. There are two hardcourt majors. I'm not going to look at it as black and white as, you know, he's got an Alcaraz head-to-head issue and therefore he's never going to win another slam. You know, yes, Medvedev is no longer a spring chicken. He probably only has, I don't know, three to five more years to compete at the top of the game. And honestly, he's kind of unprecedented as a body type being like a six foot six guy who has to do a ton of running and a ton of defending, I don't know if he's going to be somebody who's going to still be playing well at 35 years old. I'm not sure because I've just never seen that type of player do it. Um, but I still think that he'll he can win another slam. Uh, he's made some crucial improvements this year. Right? I was, if anything, I would have been worried after his bad 2022 followed by the bad January of this year uh, where I just thought his offensive ground game wasn't there. But, you know, just given the things that we've seen at times this year, what he did in Rome, what he did um, in, in Miami, ultimately he's had a, a, an encouraging season and he's got two majors every year on hard court. That really helps him. So I don't think he needs much to happen other than the draw needs to work out for him. He might need somebody unless he is able to figure out some stuff regarding his positioning. He might need a scenario where uh, he doesn't have to go through Carlos Alcaraz. And that's at the moment the most obvious variable to me that will determine whether or not Medvedev will be able to add another slam. Next one is from... Rishbala. Hi, Gil. What do you make of Nadal winning the SummerSlam in 2013, a feat that Djokovic and Federer were never able to achieve? What are Carlitos's chances of doing it this year? I don't have much to much to say about this, but um, look, Nadal's 2013 was freaking unreal. Uh, he was injured, you know, didn't play the Australian Open that year. Lost to Steve Darcy at Wimbledon. But other than that, it was such a dynamite season for Rafa. He had a classic clay court season where I know he lost in Monte Carlo, and then he went on to you know sweep the rest of the clay court season. And you know he had that epic with Novak in the semis that was truly a fantastic match. And then he had this killer hard court season. It was the last time that he beat Djokovic in a uh, in a hard court major. You know, beating Novak in the U.S. Open final. So he was awesome in 2013. I just felt that he melded. His forehand was great that year, 
he he was flattening it out better. He was going down the line with it better. He realized, I think, that compared to just the way he was playing in 2011 and 2012, where he was playing really, really good tennis, don't get me wrong, uh, he just needed to do a little bit more when it came to flattening out the forehand, particularly against Novak. I think he did those things. And it, it might have been his best best season, best version of Rafa, 2013. Because again, he was still he was still a physical monster. But I just thought he was doing more of the things that we've seen kind of Rafa 2.0 do really, really well, which is just not just have a great forehand in the sense of super tough to attack, you know, breaking contact points with the height and the spin and the angles. But I thought he was doing a good job of just getting it through the court and finishing from behind the baseline with his forehand. All right, a couple more here. From member Raphael. Hey, Gil, I wanted to ask you for your opinion on the advantage of serving first or second in the set. When Alcaraz dropped his serve at the end of the fourth set, I felt like this might be a good thing for him. He will be serving second in the fifth, which means Novak will have to hold twice in the first three games with no resting period to recover. And Alcaraz would be serving second after after breaks, making him fresher for his own service games. Ultimately, as things ended up, it might it might have actually impacted things as Djokovic was broken on the third game and Alcaraz did phenomenally to hold his service games after the third game break. Do you agree that this had some impact on how the fifth set went? And do you think this is something that impacted Alcaraz's motivation to hold serve at the end of the fourth? And do you think generally this is something players keep in mind at the tail end of sets? Okay, that might have been complicated for, for you guys. So let me try to simplify that. Basically, Alcaraz got broken to end the fourth set. That allowed Djokovic, or that forced Djokovic, to start the fifth set serving. And then he got broken in the third game of the fifth. And after every changeover, it was Alcaraz serves first, Djokovic serves second. I mean, this is uh, this is interesting, but and on when when cardio comes into play. I think it is nice to serve first out of the changeover. But generally speaking, it's actually seen as a valuable thing to keep scoreboard pressure. So I would say usually, you know, the answer to this is mostly no. That if anything, players want to hold serve at the end of a set for two reasons. They want to start the next set serving so that they can maintain scoreboard pressure and they can feel like they're kind of in the lead instead of, constantly almost feeling like you're behind even if you're on serve. I think there's a slight psychological difference there. Uh, but also, you do want to, if you can, just make your opponent serve out the set because there's always a chance that they'll get tight, they'll get nervous, they'll make some mistakes. So I, I don't think at the end of a set like the fourth that it would enter Alcaraz's mind that you know he might not want to hold. Uh, but I also think the way things were going, especially when the fifth set looms, uh, there definitely could be a little, a little bit of a mental drop off, where, where, where you are thinking about starting a new set, even terms, back on serve, you know, final kind of straight away, one more set to go, 
And I think there can be a little bit of a mental drop-off at the end of the fourth set that can come naturally. Uh, what you're saying about the cardio aspect of it can definitely be a thing, but I think you'll see it in certain matchups, particularly on clay. I don't know if on a grass court, Djokovic-Alcaraz, that would really come into play as much. All right, I'm, I'm going to answer... I'll answer two more, all right? Next one is from Jason, also a member. Gil, a lot of people complain about the set break time. Should they make it a mandatory break for consistency? The more prestigious the tournament, the more time they have to break. Maybe seven minutes for a final at a slam uh, per set versus one minute at a 250 round one. The players in singles tennis are the stars and content. When we rush them, we are devaluing the product greatly more than getting a shorter break. In other sports, you have teams to build around uh, to speed it up. In other sports, you have teams to build around to speed it up. I don't really get the last sentence, but I wouldn't mind if set breaks were, were longer. I wouldn't mind that at all. I think it's, it's good for the fans. I think it's good for, t for uh, TV as long as you do the right things during the breaks. You know, it's good for, for punditry. I think uh, the kind of halftime aspect of other sports, um, I actually think it's good. Gives fans a, a clear chance to get up out of their seats, kind of get a drink, get food, come back. They don't miss anything. I think one of the issues with the live tennis experience is you leave at the end of the set, you come back, and you're not allowed in for three games. So every time you leave, you're waiting online for the first three games. So I feel like a longer set break could, could definitely help the live experience just so that you can leave and come back before the start of the next set. Uh, and when it comes to like the shortening tennis, I think the focus really should be much more on much more on shortening the time between points. Um, between sets, I don't I don't mind that that break that chance to reset. I think it I think it kind of helps, but at the same time, I don't see this changing at all. I really don't. So I, I would expect the status quo when it comes to that. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's not really high on my, on my list of wants in terms of things changing in tennis. I don't think the players feel particularly rushed. Let's end on this one. It's from Benny Ice. I go with the rise of Alcaraz, Runa, and Sinner. FAA has become somewhat of a forgotten man. He's been inconsistent at best without a roof above his head, and it's getting worse. What went wrong? And what does he need to do to right the ship? Well, he's got knee issues this year. So he hasn't been healthy in 2023, and that's been unfortunate. I did feel like it was a really important year for Felix. 2022 was a success in a lot of ways. You know, I think you come into the year and it's like, look, you just got to win titles. Who cares how they come? Just got to win titles. And he did that. This year, it was, all right, let's kind of win outdoors more, win bigger titles, win bigger events, win outside of February and October, those kind of off-peak off periods of the tennis calendar. And he hasn't been able to do that. So, you know, it, it has been certainly an upsetting year for FAA. But look, 
the end of the day, besides the injuries, there are still, there are a lot of issues. Um, second serve in many ways is a pretty big weakness. The back, the two-hander is not on par with a lot of his top, his fellow top 10 level players. The, the point construction is still a challenge, although it's got that one, that part has gotten a lot better. And then even, you know, you look at his strength, one of his strengths, which is his forehand, and that can still betray him. That can still fail him. There are still moments where you look at an FAA match and you say, oh my God, the forehand was so erratic, especially in big moments, especially under pressure. And that, that is especially problematic when, you know, it's one thing when you have weaknesses, but it's another thing when your strengths can turn, turn the other way on you. You really don't want that. So look, FAA, you know, there's just, there's some things that he still needs to be able to get better. I, I don't know. Um, starts though with getting healthy and... Then, then we'll see what he can do from there. But I don't know. You know, his his rate of improvement hasn't been all that encouraging. Big picture, like if you look at even from 2019 to now, which is a pretty long period of time, he's definitely gotten better. But it it, it hasn't been the the most encouraging thing. So. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes from there. I don't have like a very strong opinion right now because he hasn't been healthy. So I think everybody should owe it to him. Just let him get healthy. Let him build up some rhythm, get some, get some match play back. And, and we'll see what his game looks like at that point. Right. But also like beware of the indoor hardcore season, friends. I said it at the time. I'll continue to say it. Uh, I'll be doing this YouTube channel and it'll be the year 2034, and somebody would have had this massive fall. They would have won three, four titles on indoor hard courts, and we'd be going into the year, and everybody would be like, oh, this guy's going to crush it. This guy's going to kill it. And I'm going to be like, nah, man, it's indoor hard courts. So, I mean, just careful, because it's not always a very good indication of what is going to happen. So... FAA, yeah, that's certainly been a thing with him. All right, that is all I got. I did not even get close to answering the 22 questions. So as always, what I will say is if you did not get into this mailbag, uh, try again, leave the comment, leave the same comments again. Um, or if you have a new comment, you know, then, then we can move on. I will talk to you for the mailbag next week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wall and drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wall wherever you get your podcasts.